Okay, I think we're about to make a start. Thank you. Um, this afternoon we've got session C, which is knowledge transfer and the role of me research mediators. We've got Nick Pierce from the IPPR, we've got Professor Judy Seber from Sussex, Daniel Lindsay from Shelter, and chairing this afternoon is Sonia Livingston from LSE. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Um, you just did my job for me, which is nice. Um, I gather there was some discussion of research mediators in the previous session, so now we're going to pick up that theme and develop it more thoroughly. Um, coming from the uh, Department of Media and Communications, I thought mediation was one of our words, but uh, perhaps it has a much more general uh, meaning, and we're going to discover what that is, what these research mediators are, what they do, um, and how uh, academics may need them. <laughs> So we have three speakers, they've been asked to speak for 10 minutes each and two of them are going to use PowerPoint uh, and we're going to run the session till about five past five uh, to let the next plenary session come in so that should leave us with plenty of time for questions. So we'll run the three speakers straight through and then have questions. Um, so, uh, our first speaker who I think does not have a PowerPoint is Nick Pierce who's the director of IPPR, uh, and he's going to talk to us about knowledge transfer and the role of research mediators. Thanks, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Sonny. Uh, can I ask who knows uh, IPPR in the audience? The people. Oh, that's rather good. <laughs> our, our brand strategy must be working. Um, thanks. Well, that, that sort of makes my task a, a little easier. I want to talk about um, what think tanks do, and in particular in three dimensions. Firstly, as organisations that help shape the climate of ideas of how we think about policy, public policy issues, and the solutions to social challenges. Second, as users of research and people who help to translate uh, academic research findings into policy recommendations and more broadly into political discourse. Uh, and thirdly, as spaces and places in which political debate with academics and uh, policymakers uh, takes place. Uh, there may be other roles that think tanks perform, but I want to just concentrate on, on those three and happy to pick up any questions um, on it uh, later. Um, the first, and I think probably the most important role, and we might hear more about this from uh, other members of this panel, is the way in which think tanks, as particular kinds of organisations, help to shape the broader climate of ideas in which policy discussion takes place. Uh, their impact on how people think about questions, how people frame those questions, and how people think about uh, solutions to them. Um, <clears throat> one of the oldest think tanks in the UK is the Institute for Economic Affairs. It was founded in the 1950s, and at that time, it uh, was a lone voice in the wilderness arguing for privatisation, for um, monetarist economic policy, uh, and for things like, you know, things like student loans, at a time when uh, the world was dominated, at least in the UK and most of Europe and the US, by the post-war Keynesian consensus. These sorts of ideas were considered marginal, cranky, uh, completely <coughs> out with the mainstream of political debate. But they ploughed that furrow, a lonely furrow, for the next sort of 20 or so years. I mean, they're still going today. But in the 1970s, uh, those sorts of ideas started to gain more currency. Uh, and they were joined by other think tanks on the right, the Adam Smith Institute, Centre for Policy Studies and others, who became very important outriders for the Thatcher Revolution. And in the US, uh, Cato Heritage, think, think tanks of that kind who did the same for Reagan. 
and they helped make thinkable things which previously had been considered unthinkable. They helped to bring into public debate uh, issues which uh, had not been on the agenda of policymakers for some time. They were out with, if you like, the broad ideological uh, common sense of the post-war era. Um, and in the Thatcher period in particular, uh, organisations like the Adam Smith Institute uh, were outriders for what Thatcher said and did. They were the ones arguing first for privatisation. They were arguing for things like energy liberalisation, for changes to the way public services worked and so on. Uh, and it was in that climate that my organisation, the IPPR, was formed in the late 1980s to try and provide a counterweight on the centre-left to uh, that kind of uh, presence and pressure from the uh, centre-right think tanks and to try and bring a new kind of discourse about modernising centre-left thought into play uh, politically and in the kind of public realm, the public sphere, if you like, in the broadest sense of policy discussion. And uh, I like to think we were successful in that. Uh, the Commission on Social Justice uh, was... Uh, Home, uh, hosted at IPPR, the secretary was uh, David Miliband, uh, then a young man researching at IPPR. Uh, we played an important role, we think, in helping to recover momentum for progressive thinking. Um, in more recent times, uh, Policy Exchange, um, centre-right think tank, uh, can be said to have uh, done a similar job for uh, conservative thinking for Cameron's uh, approach in particular, and places like the Centre for Social Justice helping people like Ian Duncan Smith think about how to approach welfare reform and so on. So this is, a, I think, a very important role that um, think tanks play. And one of the ways in which they're able to do that, of course, is that they sit at, the, if you like, at the nexus of um, different kinds of players or organisations within our public sphere. So they have good contacts to the media, they have good contacts with politicians, they have good networks with people that are interested uh, in public policy. And they are spaces and places for that kind of debate, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. But they also act as translators and users of academic research of the things that uh, you, people like yourselves here at the LSE do. And uh, one of the other things I think that happened in the 1980s was that the introduction of the research assessment exercise, alongside the hostility of the Thatcher government in particular to uh, a lot of what was produced in the universities in social science and other departments at that time, uh, a deliberate attempt, if you like, to eschew what was being said in the universities. They were considered to be places where left-wing academics did things, spent too long doing them, had tenure to do them, uh, and weren't of much interest to uh, the, the government. Things like uh, our cohort studies uh, were cancelled. You know, the, uh, we have, a, as you all know, the big cohort studies, 1958 birth cohort study, the 1970 uh, uh, cohort study um, wasn't repeated in the 1980s. We have a big gap in our social science knowledge as a consequence. It got cancelled uh, and we had to wait until uh, 2000 to have the Millennium Cohort to pick up the threads again from that incredibly important evidence base. So something happened in the 1980s that the research assessment exercise sort of took universities off in one direction. It put all the incentives on uh, peer review, on being published in journals. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's the impression that most people give of that period in the 1990s. And at the same time, you perhaps had government going in the opposite direction as well. So a big gulf opened up between uh, academic research departments and universities and the political sphere and government, if you like. And Britain, to my mind, doesn't have the same sort of public intellectual culture that you find in places like uh, France and Germany. Uh, it doesn't have the same sort of accord given to uh, leading academics as uh, big public intellectuals who are looked upon for comment and looked upon for uh, 
thinking uh, on the big public public policy questions. And so into that gap, if you like, think tanks sort of went. They filled some of that gap, the distance that had opened up. And they became people who could translate what was being researched and written about in the universities, published in the universities, into things that could be used uh, to support uh, policy, uh, to turn that kind of evidence into thinking about policy recommendations, not in a crudely reductive way, not in a utilitarian, crudely utilitarian impact way, but as uh, organisations that could, if you like, to help help distill the best of academia uh, and use it to uh, make uh, policy recommendations for changing policy. And I think that role still exists. It doesn't exist in all the think tanks. Think tanks are very different. They have different value orientations. They inhabit different uh, points in the kind of spectrum of ideas. Uh, and some of them are, you know, little more than a few people. Others are rather larger. And so I don't make a claim here for all think tanks. But speaking for my own, uh, it's certainly true that we place great emphasis and stress on uh, using the very best academic evidence, collaborating with academics, sometimes commissioning academics, uh, trying to uh, get peer review of our own work, uh, having it fed into the recommendations we made so that we can really make sure that our work is of a high standard, is probably quality assured, but also reflects the best of the research that's being undertaken. And because we uh, exist in this space between these kinds of networks of the media, of politicians, of civil servants, uh, which is why, by and large, people in the think tanks are clustered in Westminster, uh, we're slightly different. We have um, uh, an arm in Newcastle and, and Manchester, IPPR North. But most of us are clustered in Westminster for the obvious reason that that's where you go to understand what's happening in politics, to build political networks, uh, and to uh, ensure that you can influence uh, policymakers. So uh, I think that role uh, will, will continue. Some people say that um, uh, evidence-based policymaking uh, has been replaced by values-based policymaking or if you like, uh, sometimes at its worst, by policy-based evidence-making. Uh, I hope that's not always true. But um, I, I really do think that um, that role that, that think tanks play that is about saying, you know, how can we drive forward ideas and agendas for change? How can we take our value orientations and ensure that we work with the best of the research in the universities to turn that into policy recommendations is good for us. It's good for us to work with universities. Very, very good for us to be based on the highest standards of research. Uh, important that that's the case, but also good for the universities, that we help translate some of those research findings that you labour long and hard over into ideas for policy, into influence uh, on policy making. So uh, I think that relationship will continue, um, whatever the ups and downs of particular think tanks, and they do ebb and flow. Britain has a healthy think tank environment. Uh, it's rather similar to the US in that respect than continental Europe. We're not state funded, we, we live on our wits, uh, but as a consequence, it's quite a vibrant uh, think tank world. So that relationship, I hope, will continue uh, and be strengthened in the future. I hope you think so too. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay. Um, a good start. Lots of metaphors there. Um, outriders and uh, think tanks ebbing and flowing and uh, the task of translation. So uh, I think we can uh, be asking about all of those roles um, in a little while. Um, but next we're going to hear from uh, Professor Judy Seba from the University of Sussex, who has got a PowerPoint presentation that I hope is going to work. Okay. Yes. Good. Right, thank you very much indeed, and um, thank you for inviting me here to this um, challenging opportunity. Um, I, I'm going to be talking about some work on research mediators and think tanks in 
particular as one type of research mediator, drawing on a review I undertook um, while working as a visiting professor at the University of Toronto um, uh, about a year ago, and uh, also drawing on an ESRC-funded seminar series on user engagement in research. Um, I would also inevitably be drawing on, because of my own uh, um, experiences, uh, on time six years spent in the Department for Education when I overlapped actually a little bit with Nick. And um, I have to say, because I've already apologised to him, that almost everything, probably everything I say that is negative about think tanks from the literature uh, probably doesn't apply to IPPR uh, or, to that matter, to Demos, uh, which I've worked with quite closely. So I'm going to start with a quote from the concluding chapter of this book called Think Tank Research Quality, which is um, by um, Kevin Wellner and colleagues, edited by them at the University um, of Boulder in Colorado, and they are, have undertaken peer review, uh, they have sent for peer review 51 think tank reports across uh, various educational topics. I have to say this report is limited to US think tanks and it's limited to educational topics, uh, but the quote is not about education that he starts with um, in the uh, concluding chapter. He says, scientists and economists have been offered, it's a quote, sorry, I should say from the Guardian, uh, our Guardian, UK Guardian, 2nd of February 2007. Scientists and economists have been offered $10,000 each by a lobby group funded by one of the world's largest oil companies to undermine a major climate change report due to be published today. Letters sent by the American Enterprise Institute, an ExxonMobil funded think tank with close links to the Bush administration, offered the payments for articles that emphasised the shortcomings of a report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Travel expenses and additional payments were also offered. The AEI has received more than 1.6 million from ExxonMobil and more than 20 of its staff have worked as consultants to the Bush administration. A former head of ExxonMobil is the vice chairman of AEI's board of trustees. Now, I'm not saying that's typical of what happens in uh, the UK, but I think it in, inher inherent in that example, or embedded in that example, are a number of key problems. Uh, that are perhaps to a lesser extent um, uh, around in the relationship between academia, um, research mediators and policy making. And uh, why is this important? Luckily for me, uh, Nick has covered some very important issues about uh, what think tanks do, so I'd be able to skip a bit out, because otherwise I'm going to be a bit shorter time. So um, they have, I think there's an economic imperative for us uh, in research to justify our public spending. There's an example here which actually uh, came from work that the LSE was involved with in with the Institute of Psychiatry some years ago. Um, and um, uh, there are many examples of where research evidence is ignored at the expense, literally financial expense, of uh, taxpayers. There is a moral imperative for those of us, which includes many people in the room indirectly or directly, um, to ensure that the services we provide are informed as by the best possible evidence. And now we have an academic imperative, which has been made more explicit, uh, both through the um, assessment of significance, 
in the outputs of the REF and through the actual, and that would be academic uh, impact, and through the uh, impact case studies. So this area is, has taken on much higher uh, profile. <coughs> um, then what is the problem? Why isn't this happening now, if you like? Um, well, one problem that we have, which uh, I would say was evident uh, when I was in the department, was that policymakers in general do not rank academic research very highly. Uh, there are lots of other people, including think tanks, who they think uh, have more interesting things to say. Um, we'll come back to that. Um, they regard, uh, with some good reason, research findings as impenetrable, ambiguous, conflicting, insignificant, um, and only partially relevant, and always arriving at the wrong time. So that's where think tanks come in to try and uh, sort out some of this confusion. But they also display themselves confusion about what evidence is. And uh, I like this quote from the House of Commons debate uh, on uh, cancer. And Evan Harris has already been quoted once today in another session. And uh, I would agree with the person who said what a great loss he is to uh, reminding Parliament of the importance of uh, good evidence. Um, I'm only going to here locate what I'm talking about because the conference has been partly, our session is, is um, labelled knowledge transfer, but I'm actually talking about knowledge translation. So these three categories, this is the middle category for me about re knowledge re remediation of research and the final one, research use, has also been focused on a great deal today. Um, and Nick has, as I said, covered um, some of these issues already about what they do. There is an interesting distinction in the different uh, definitions of um, research mediation as to how far they are autonomous or linked up with government. And within education, Stephen Ball and colleagues have, uh, and this is where it starts to get a bit negative, I'm afraid, Stephen Ball and colleagues have started to try and map the different relationships between organisations and look at the relationships that might operate in the, in the uh, policy context. Now, this is quite an extreme position, but nevertheless it's interesting. So if you can see that at all, this is an attempt to draw the lines of relationship between individuals who sit on each other's boards or who have worked for different organisations and so on. We won't ask the current panel uh, and I won't reveal exactly which of these organisations I've had anything to do with for the moment. The point here is whether or not, and I would agree with Nick, that there is a gap there for the big ideas which these organisations do provide, but whether or not they also um, actually in some cases end up being exclusive and closed um, with a limited set of ideas that are regenerated. So, and this is again the line which um, Diane Stone, who's a political scientist looking at think tanks, has also identified. She says they're not bridges, which is commonly how they're, de commonly how they're described between research and policy, because those lines are blurred. Uh, the Centre for Economic Performance in LSE is an example she uses of that. We don't have time to unpack all this, but maybe in the questions. Secondly, that they can't serve the public interest because they never venture out of Westminster or DC. Um, Nick's just put us right on the IPPR on that, so that's great. Um, but it probably is true of some think tanks. 
and that they actually, in her view, don't think they recycle, synthesize. I'm not sure I really agree with this, uh, with, with, with that uh, particular point. But they're a manifestation, she says, of the knowledge power nexus. Um, so, what contribution, looking more positively, can they make, and how does this connect up with our work? Well, there are some examples, very good examples, of individuals from uh, think tanks uh, liaising between policymakers and researchers during the commissioning of, of research, during uh, research, uh, the process of research, and during the reporting. Um, doing some of the things uh, that have already been spoken about in terms of translation and redefinition. Uh, they very often have been actively engaged in getting the problem definition, uh, more, more, bringing more clarity to that. They've also linked researchers with users, which we would argue uh, we, is a very important aspect of the work, and they've collaborated with researchers specifically on research projects in the way that uh, Nick suggested. And interestingly, in one uh, study, uh, looking at the most influential think tanks, two English ones were identified, one which uh, Nick's already mentioned, and the Centre for Social Justice, specifically in relation to child benefit, um, child tax benefit. Um, economic think tanks have more influence. This has also come up in another session. Uh, who, whichever economic policy is um, prevalent. And the work in relation to the media shows that they are often regarded, I was delighted to hear that um, IPPR wants to have their work peer-reviewed uh, as a matter of uh, course, but this particular study, which was done by Haas, um, suggests that media, pres media present think tanks as credible sources of research, regardless of the extent to which uh, each think tank emphasizes policy or political advocacy over the professional norms of academic research, in other words, not peer-reviewed. So, this finally, uh, this, this study, the Wellner et al. Uh, analysis, um, sorry, um, they really showed that much of the research in these uh, reviews undertaken by think tanks were not original, that they were based on what we would term inadequate re reviews. And I am a, a bit of a um, promoter of systematic review in social science. And uh, I think this is where, interestingly, the criteria that Wellner et al. apply are almost exactly the same as those used in social science uh, systematic reviewing. That they echo each other's arguments, cite and republish each, each other's work, um, and that um, they conclude that it's junk science. A bit harsh, perhaps. So, to finish off, um, how they work then, contacts with the media, understanding of communication, presentation, all of the work on think tanks talks about how much the presentation is so much better than that which is typical in academia, and timeliness are strengths, and um, credible colleagues with acknowledged expertise and close enough for rapid consultation. That close enough has uh, been disputed by other people. Um, but in relation, interestingly, this last comment to the REF, uh, it's argued that they are judged on measures of exposure, sometimes not on measures of influence. And so we can learn from this, I think, in terms of uh, working with think tanks in 
utilising their very strong social networks, which we know helps impact planning user engagement throughout the research process because they have better user contacts, developing media savvy, which we don't tend to be brilliant at, um, uh, sometimes collaborating on the actual research, recognising formal mediating bodies such as NICE and SKY, and um, all the time maintaining research integrity, um, being careful here not to be too precious, but not to just tell people what they want to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Um, so some advice there for um, uh, academics as well as I think for the uh, think tanks. Um, but we'll hear from uh, one more speaker before we uh, debate where we've got to so far. So um, Dan Lindsay from Shelter is going to um, also talk to us about knowledge transfer and your... PowerPoint should be up there. So. Right, good <laughs> afternoon. Um, yeah, so I'm Dan Lindsay, I'm from Shelter. I, I work in the research team in our um, campaigns and communications division. I'm going to give you quite a specific example of Shelter and the work that we do. Hopefully, it has, there are some general learnings and its relevance to kind of um, some of the issues we've discussed. It seems that, that hopefully, there are some linkages to the presentations you've already seen. Um, however, to start off with, um, these are our vision and aims. This is basically underpins everything we do. We are a campaigning organisation predominantly, so um, it, again, even that's a specific example to shelter, all the work that we do is to support these, whether it's for our campaigning or services work, it's to promote the plight of homelessness and, and people in housing need, and it's specifically those two aims underneath, so driving up the supply of housing and specifically driving up the supply of affordable housing so people can access and keep a home. Um, now, obviously, that's not, you know, let's be honest about this, it's not independent in that sense. We have a set agenda. We're quite clear about that. So the work that we do is to support these regional aims, which you know, certainly I would imagine everyone that works at Shelter um, stands behind. Um, where we differ to... Um, other campaigning organisations and um, certainly some of the think tanks is that we also provide our own services so some of this is through um, legal aid funding, some of it's from our voluntary donations, however we do have um, I mean, quite a large number of people that come through and receive face-to-face -face advice or advice over the telephone um, now as an organisation we like to think that this gives us kind of a, a grounding in the issues we're talking about and, you know, can we uh, people who work for shelter kind of deal with this faith, uh, deal with this day by day. Um, you can see at the bottom some of the uh, routes through which we do this. Um, it's also, from our perspective, increasing becoming a use of uh, information for our own work. So, obviously, when you have this number of people coming through in terms of potential trends that we might be seeing and kind of the sorts of services that might have more impact than others, and, and kind of tracking that and, and seeing how that works um, is something that. We, at the moment, it, we don't do very much of, but we're starting to do that, and it's something we're looking to develop going forward. Um, now, it looks like an, a rather boring organogram. However, this is this is the division that I sit in, and just to point out that kind of within that, there are very different roles, very different functions. I mean, these can be as small as three people, so there's not a massive army of us that work that work in this division. However. Um, going from left to right, so research and policy, kind of much more about kind of seeking the evidence to support um, 
work we want to achieve and the, the kind of the agenda we want to set. Um, moving to the right to much more kind of methods of dissemination and kind of getting our message across to the public, but to other organisations, you know, to other audiences as well. So public affairs is very much within Parliament, or um, and also I think it's some of the issues on perhaps a much smaller level we also face within our own organisation. So what the research team wants to do is often very different to what media wants to do. Media just wants us to provide a large percentage that can be a headline for a, a whatever kind of reactive article is going out that day. Whereas we have obviously pushed for you know, slightly longer term work, perhaps some, some of the issues you're looking at as well. So it's just to recognise that even within an organisation like ours, these can be, you have these kind of conflicting um, priorities. Um, in terms of getting our case heard, I mean, shelters often on the wrong side of the argument. We're not the taxpayers' alliance, so whether it's benefit cuts or uh, kind of people wanting to build new homes, it, the importance of robust research is critical for us. Perhaps in a way that it might not be for some other organisations, where we're able to capture the public, you know, right on the back of whatever's popular at the time. Um, so I'll give you some examples in a moment, but in it, it kind of, we like to think it underpins everything we do, that everything we say that's not values-based, we can um, base on some form of credible research. Um, in terms of how we do that, um, so one of the, I mean, particularly recently when we're looking at benefit cuts and all the rest of it, um, kind of challenging government decisions on what, what we don't do, what, in terms of their own evidence, Quite often, we can see quite big gaps in it. It's, you know, it's, it's uses quite serious assumptions, so it's kind of challenging them back on that basis. And we see that's quite often quite a route into having some influence. Um, and obviously, at the bottom, providing a voice for those that are most affected um, is obviously key to what we do. Quite particularly in those in housing needs and homeless, these, these are people that don't generally have a voice. Um, and also highlighting the impact on households. And unfortunately, if particularly if you're looking for um, kind of more media-friendly case studies, then there's certain types of households that are more sympathetic than others, and you can get into issues there. But it's identifying, you know, kind of where you know kind of, um, where government policies have an impact on uh, groups and people that um, people have sympathy with, I suppose. Um, I don't expect you to look forward to this, but just showing you kind of a range of different outputs that we engage in, um, all the way from a YouGov survey to, um, to get a particular quote for, for in a very quick kind of finding, all the way through to a currently undertaken three-year longitudinal study of people's experiences in the private rented sector, which is a discrete study that's funded by a big lottery. Um, so we do do the, the full breadth of work, um, and obviously these are just a whole range of kind of outputs that we um, we provide. Um, and we do engage with academia <coughs> um, on a regular basis. We engage with um, housing academics, we, whether that's through attending housing conferences or um, just general day-to-day -day relations with people that um, we work with on a regular basis. When we're doing our own internal work, particularly in the research team, we, we do like to set up some kind of advisory. I say board, that, that might be a little bit overstated, but certainly some kind of advisory group where we can test our approach to particular work that we're doing and just so we, we, we've got that external influence and we, like, we can kind of demonstrate that it's credible. Um, we also commission research, obviously we're a charity, we've got quite a small budget, um, but it does tend to be for smaller, more bespoke pieces of work. And talking about the timeliness that came on earlier, if there's a, a, a particular issue that's bigger at that time, we might be able to 
you know, kind of fund academics to look, in, look at a very specific issue for us. Um, and I, I mentioned this uh, longitudinal study we're doing in the PRS that will result in um, some form of academic output. Um, and in terms of dealing with um, reviewing journals, journal articles, I mean that is something we don't really have the capacity as a team. So awareness of these of, of these is much more from networking and from the existing relationships that we have. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, I mean this was probably one of our biggest. Um, areas of work over the summer following the emergency budget and the cuts to housing benefit and some of the impacts and I noticed I was being a bit bullet point heavy so the, the map on the right is a map of, uh, of the extent to which households would um, lose income based on the housing benefit cuts. Um, now this got us a lot of coverage and, it, and even though um, the broad policy stands there are some quite significant concessions that have been made um, and the introduction of it was deferred to allow people to have the time to adjust and perhaps move if they need to. Um, it was critical for us that this was an independent assessment. This is something that we um, commissioned the uh, CCA HPR, so the Cambridge Centre for Housing Planning Research, I think. Um, and they, they undertook this for us. And I think without that, given the kind of barrage of criticism that we had, because it was something that was quite unpopular to be saying, um, I think if, had we done it in-house, it would have had nowhere near the, the kind of level of impact that it did by handing it over to Cambridge and say, this isn't, obviously they are, you know, they work in housing and planning and they may have their own kind of um, views of what's right and wrong, but they are seen and perceived to be independent, which is, which is incredibly important. Um, and most importantly, it was a very quick piece of work. Um, Cambridge put a lot of time in for us to do it. And it was the timeliness that was absolutely critical. It was getting that kind of being able to say it at that time, saying it several months later would have meant that we'd, we'd lost the agenda on that one. Um, and <coughs> a not very interesting bar graph, but this is basically an example of. So in 2007, uh, Cambridge again did a piece of work looking at uh, mapping and measuring housing needs across England and in the regions. Um, and then for a more recent study that we've undertaken in house, where we looked at the um, <clears throat> potential to meet housing need through um, different types of underutilisation, so whether it be empty or second or um, yeah, empty public, private and second homes, um, we were still able to refer back to this 2007 figure because even though it was an older piece of research, it wouldn't have generated any kind of headlines or coverage. Again, by us repeating it, it's unlikely that anything significant has changed since then, even though it's a few years old, it's still something we make use of and, and lots of that sort of work, we are able to, um, are, we can extend the shelf life because we can use it later on if it's relevant to what we're looking at. Um, in terms of some of the, so just speaking more generally, in terms of some of the challenges, um, in <laughs> um, so I think one of the main challenges for us is that I think it comes down to kind of um, how do we make, in terms of making use of academic work, um, I've said here academic awareness and policy environment, that's perhaps not fair, I mean we've got a policy team and we still find it difficult to keep on track of everything, but it is, it is about that timeliness and relevance and so it's kind of been able to pick up a, an art, see, look at a piece of academic research and see kind of what the implications might be and I think quite often because um, research might be undertaken, it might not necessarily, it's difficult for us to make use of because it's not specific enough to the policies we're looking at and, and more general academic arguments won't hold sway with the policy makers you need to say quite, you know, quite specifically this policy will in, in, uh, have an effect on this or that. Um, 
and it's allow awareness, we just don't have the capacity to trawl through kind of lots and lots of research programs, and so it is about kind of identifying whether it's through networking our relationships, um, what they might be, um, and distilling research findings quite often I get stuff put on my desk because I've got more quantitative background asking me to decipher it and kind of what is this useful, can we make use of it? And so it is quite difficult for non-academics to, um, and even myself, I find it kind of quite difficult sometimes to really have to think hard about what the implications might be of uh, quite a dry uh, journal article. Um, and I think I've already said the clarity and broad implications, so there might be a piece of research, it might be very interesting, but in terms of um, what that might mean for organisations like Shelter, I think if there is some way of, kind of bridging that gap, um, it would be incredibly useful. Last slide. Um, so I think just generally I, I kind of asked various members of my team kind of what would be useful, what might be helpful, and one that came up was kind of widening access to academic research, and so whether it is through institutional repositories or some way of us quite often we just, I've said we don't have the, the resource to kind of trawl through them, but at the same time quite often we don't have access to them, we don't have kind of the, the, the rights to go online and view them. So if someone points them canal direction, we can't necessarily get hold of it all the time. Um, unlike IPPR, we are quite specific. We are quite reactive. And we, even though we like to do some broad pieces of work, we are quite often, especially at the moment, quite reactively responding to government announcements. So I think someone that's an organisation that can take a step back from that and look at some of the broader issues be extremely helpful to us because we don't have the kind of resource internally to do that. Um, I think just a general kind of uh, more engagement between the two organisations would be helpful. Um, I think also just recognising that an organisation at Shelter we have, we have experienced at the dissemination, at the campaigning and, and that sort of work. So it's kind of perhaps there are opportunities for partnerships to work together and take, you know, kind of people to provide the more robust research and us to kind of run with that and kind of unlobby with it. Um, and recognising that on our part, when we do commission, it's often um, quite small amounts of money, quite short timeframes, and perhaps we could be clearer and more transparent in exactly how we go about kind of commissioning. So often it's built on existing relationships. It's not, um, it could be better. Um, that's it. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you very much to um, all three speakers. And uh, now um, I turn the floor over to you who've been listening patiently. Um, I'm going to ask you if you'd wait for a microphone. There are people who are roving. And the first question, I think, is here. And then one at the back. And then I'll come round. Uh, hello. My name is Eloise Riodel. I work for the Refugees Study Centre, University of Oxford. Um, uh, my question is for Nier, Nick Pierce and Professor Judy Seba. Um, and it's about the relationship between academic institutions and, and think tanks. And I was wondering, um, with, with the current trend of more direct interaction between academic institutions and policymakers and up to point practitioners, um, and, and some of the fact that some think tanks are really highlighting the credibility of their own research and the fact that academic institutions are now really uh, better at presenting their own research through the web, through the production of policy briefings, etc. Is there not a risk of having m more competition rather than, than co collaboration, especially given the uh, economic <coughs> climate? Um, and if, if there is such a risk, uh, how can we, you know, work jointly towards uh, dealing with that challenge? Thank you. Thank you. 
Do you want to um, take yeah. that, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, it's certainly true that um, the think tank world is competitive. There are lots of people um, mm. often chasing the same uh, grant funding. I, th I think the problem with collaboration is one of, um, if I'm honest, is one of timetables. I mean, our funding is sort of three to four months out. Um, you know, we have to raise money all the time and do work on relatively fast timetables. And politics, as we've heard, also changes very rapidly. So if you want to collaborate, um, you know, you have to be able to do things on timetables that fit both sides. Universities tend to work to, you know, uh, different timetables, you know, research projects over a number of years, or, you, you know, you apply for a grant, it might take you about a year to find out whether you've been successful. Um, we just can't wait that long, so, you know, we'd run out of money. So one of the things that I think is important is, you know, when do you collaborate? When in the point in the sort of cycle of the production of academic research and uh, the political cycle, do you choose to collaborate? I mean, I, I take your point, it's, it's a very fair one, but um, at the moment, the thing that inhibits that, I mean, there are other inhibitors maybe, but one, one thing that does inhibit it is the different timescales or rhythms, if you like, to which think tanks and academia work. Judy, do you want to say okay. yes? I, I think um, uh, Nick's description is right, except that I think that's actually changing in favour of greater collaboration. Because I think increasingly um, researchers uh, in social sciences are having to look to other sources. The timescale you describe is very typical of a research council, for example, but not of most of the charities uh, or not of government departments. So most of our money now tends to come from government departments or charities or in terms of frequency of, of um, uh, maybe not amounts, but certainly frequency of actual grants. So, I mean, we can, uh, you know, let, let, but what I did want to pick up on was you said, now that we're better at presentation, I have to say, I don't think academia is anywhere near yet better at presentation. It might be a little bit better, but, you know, in general, we've still got an awful long way to go on that. And because think tanks tend to be, uh, and other research mediation organisations, but particularly think tanks, tend to be populated by staff with experience of the media, of communication and so on. They're way ahead of us on that. And so I think that actually, and they also tend to be closer to policy, more up to date on policy, more aware of what's coming next, better at guessing what's coming next. And I think for those reasons, uh, collaboration and, and, and you know we can provide from academia the peer review that you were talking about so I think for those reasons the time is actually you know this is it's good to, to, to look towards greater collaboration now thank you yes question at the back and then there's one down here yeah maybe yeah. yeah Peter Lodger from University of East Anglia this is probably mainly for Daniel but might also be for Nick I'd be interested to know the extent to which your organizations have already been involved in doing um, non-academic stakeholder assessments of research proposals, research reports, or even directly partnering academic organizations in research funding proposals, which is something that we're increasingly encouraged to do. And looking forward, whether you expect to be directly involved in assessing these case studies, these impact case studies for the REF, or at least providing evidence that we'll all be coming to you for, saying, can you say you know, how important our research has been for you? Um, I certainly you know, I, I, I was involved, I just got a, an ESRC grant, which I partnered an NGO to get, and they were part of that specific ESRC call and they were completely punch drunk by the time I came to them with my idea so it took a lot of persuading so I'd like to know in terms of the resource implications for your organizations as well how you're going to deal with this challenge 
Actually, I think I'm going to take a few more and then probably round up, given that, that time is short. So if we can go to the next question. Okay, yes, thanks thank very you. much. Um, Ted Fuller from the University of Lincoln. Um, given, I think, that one of the key values as academic researchers we have is independence and, and the, the legitimacy that comes from that, then I have two questions. One is, when we're thinking about or considering impact, do we count the unintended consequences as well as the intended consequences? And how do we do that? And secondly, related to, to that, I think, in my mind, is is our research likely to become more politicized? Great question. Thank you. There's one down um, here, lady in the middle there. Um, Sheila Peace from the Open University. Um, I would like a comment about how amenable think tank uh, in general are to be part of advisory groups for academic research that may be more long term in, in, uh, in their funding. It obviously has a kind of, in my experience, a kind of two-way process of enabling people um, outside of the academic group to have an understanding of the data and also to be able to advise over time um, suggestions for dissemination so it becomes uh, kind of more of a more fruitful exercise. Um, I think the academics also get uh, more of a sense of the networks that you have and the, and, and, and the way that we could um, disseminate that information. My experience of doing joint funded work with, in this case, Help the Aged before it became Age UK, were issues around negotiation around copyright and intellectual property and some of those um, things, which I think there's a, there is a bit of a learning curve in my experience, but um, way back in the early 80s, I was mines researcher, so I um, have something in common with the gentleman from Shelter. <laughs> Thank you. Um, other questions? Uh, yeah, okay, one just up there. So I'm hearing questions about resources, about what it takes to build that kind of relationship between academics and um, think tanks, and then also a question that I don't want to lose about independence and politicization of research, which I think is really interesting, so I don't know if you're going to add a third this theme. This is going to be a, an add-on to the, the, the issue of time. I'm John Parkinson at Warwick. Um, it was just a, an observation about um, the, the, the time horizons that we work at. And I think one of the advantages um, that, that some academics have over think tanks is, is institutional memory. Um, I don't know if this rings true with, with any of the panellists, but it's been my experience that staffing in think tanks, there's got a high turnover rate, people are relatively young, and I've... Um, I can give some specific examples of, of cases where work within that very think tank had been forgotten within five years and that the, that the think tank was reinvestigating stuff that it had already been a leader in. And I think that's interesting, both from an impact point of view and from the think tank's own point of view, because I, I think academics need to remember that they need to keep communicating, communicate regularly and, and keep conversations running rather than think they can say something once and have it, have it heard and remembered for all time. Thank you. Um, yes, okay, this might be a nearly final point. Yeah. Susanna Bowyer from Research in Practice. Um, I'd just like to really endorse the value of um, 
for academics of getting involved in proper knowledge exchange. Um, the, use, the term knowledge transfer used to be more prevalent and, and the term knowledge exchange is around a lot today but actually what I'm hearing is mostly about knowledge transfer still academics getting their findings out there. We've been involved for 15 years in um, facilitating um, bridging between uh, academics and practitioners in children's services and so I could give you sort of numerous examples of projects where that's been that kind of collaboration has been so beneficial. Um, <clears throat> to give one recent one, we, we do a kind of action research um, type model, which we're in the final stages of one of those around producing resources for analysis and critical thinking in, um, in doing assessment in children's services. And we're just piloting some resources that have been put together with academics from Bristol, with um, a group of practitioners and with a colleague of mine. <laughs> and um, Eileen Munro's report, policy report, Eileen's a professor here at LSE, um, is making a huge um, waves in our, in our sector and she's very much um, endorsing, uh, among many things, but she's endorsing this uh, idea of user-led design in assessment tools. And because we're led by practice, because we're funded actually by practice, not by Whitehall and the um, policy bubble, you know, but by a network of um, local authority uh, children's services people subscribing mostly to our stuff. Um, we're in a position to take the lead that practice gives on what needs to be researched, network together groups of practitioners with academics to produce stuff, pilot it in our network, and um, you know, it arguably takes you ahead of the curve of the Whitehall bubble or the academic bubble if you can get into kind of long-term engagement with you know, more of the frontline people in, in whatever area it is that you're working in. Thank you. So I, I'm hearing lots of uh, commitment to making this uh, kind of exchange and bridging work. Um, some uh, perhaps scepticism, though, about whether that might compromise academic independence. So I wonder if I can ask each of our panellists to offer um, a final reflection. We need to finish in about five minutes, so uh, I think um, let's, um, let's go in the order that we went before. So, Nick, if you would like to... Well, I, I won't try and respond to all of those no. points, but I think the, um, I mean, the question of politicisation is an important one, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, I would feel everybody here would endorse uh, the importance of academic freedom in a free society, of uh, autonomy in respect of the state. You don't want politicians making your uh, research decisions for you, but if politicisation means that you don't engage with public policy or wider policy debate, then I think you're failing the wider society because you are the repositories of significant knowledge and understanding which it's important that uh, the wider society can draw on. So I am in favour, as I said earlier, of trying to strengthen the links between uh, academia and policymakers, also think tanks where we play that uh, kind of role. And you're very right about policy memory. I think there is turnover in think tanks. Uh, it's incredibly important to uh, remember some of the sort of key things that we, you know, you've been working on and so, and so forth. But there are many ways of doing it. And I think for me, just leave you with this really, I think when I, mean, I get a lot of people uh, from universities saying, you know, can we partner up with you? It usually involves wanting to put a sort of dissemination seminar at the end of a bid, uh, where IPPR basically is the host to a seminar. So well, we might have 500 pounds for it in a sort of 80,000 pound grant bid, you know. And, you know, that's just of no interest to me whatsoever. Um, uh, proper collaboration uh, where there is genuine synergy between the interests and strengths of the different organisations is valuable and more of it should happen. Mm, thank you. Um, okay, do you want to go next then? Yes, I think so. Yeah.
Okay, um, so just about the part of the point on non non academic stakeholder participation. I mean, we that is something we are we do occasionally get involved in. There is definitely a capacity issue within our team to kind of do lots of that, but that is something uh, we do get involved in, particularly if it looks like something that's of interest to us. And and it's generally it's fairly light in terms of workload from our part, so it's something that we can often make the time for. So. If there are opportunities for that, then by all means get in touch with us or organisations that are similar to us. Um, and in terms of the kind of this issue about kind of politicisation of research, I mean, in terms of from our perspective, it's, it's incredibly important that the, the research is seen to be credible and robust. So if, if it's seen to be that something's been a bit fudged and it, it's, it's a bit politicised, then that's not actually going to help our case at all. I think the main the main concern in that realm is whether if something's not strong enough or um, or isn't supporting kind of what we, what we want to campaign for, we may we won't use it. And and, it, and, if, and if that comes to if that's then linked to um, you know where money comes from, then I suppose there isn't there's a, a bit of an issue there. I'm not quite sure what the solution to that would be. But can I can I just push you on that point because it does seem to me um, really critical. I mean, if we're if we're in the business of building relationships between academics and think tanks over time, and if then, as it were, the academics' independent research comes up with findings that don't suit your campaigning case. Yeah. What happens to that research? Do, I mean, well, we then publicise it separately, and does it well, go against your interests, or will we all? Well, I mean, I think, it, this, I think this is the in, in terms of the. Um, I think it's about that partnership working. It's about so it's being involved in a in a piece of work. And if it's you're right, if it's not something that mm. um, comes up with very unexpected findings, that's really not in our favour, then it might be something that's an organisation that has a very clear kind of um, campaigning arts will will not make use of it. That's not to say that. But we'd be unlikely to be funding uh, a long-term piece of research such as that. So it would be more about um, kind of our involvement and using, I suppose, us as a, a means of disseminating that message. There'd be if something if there's if there's something that was discovered that was counter to kind of what Shelter was calling for. There'd be plenty of other organisations be willing to be willing to disseminate it. So maybe it's about kind of choosing the appropriate organisation for... Um, mm. But then we're back to the model that Nick doesn't like if we do the research and then we look for a place to disseminate it depending on the findings and where it's suited. But I think there's, yeah. I mean, in terms of, so I mean, there's kind of two yeah. levels. There's, there's quite specific mm. policy, you know, kind of mm. what is relevant today, say the housing benefit was a good example. Mm. Um, and if that came back and saying, you know, no one needs to move as a result of these changes. Mm. We, it's not something we're gonna, we would have taken to the Guardian or anywhere else. But if you're talking about longer term, um, slightly broader issues, such as these, these people's mm. experiences in the private rented sector, it's quite a broad area. And so there's probably going to be work within that that we can make use of. That's almost yeah. about shaping you know, what is the role of the private rented sector um, in the UK housing market over the next kind okay. of 10, 20 years. And so it's yeah. we, we have less of an interest in what the specific outcome of finding is. is that once we have the research, that will, that will influence how we go about kind of working out what we then need to do on a certain more shorter term day to day. I don't know if that's... Um, well, Judy, you've, you've reflected on these issues um, <coughs> and you're the academic who's looked at the think tank relationships. Okay, so I just want to yeah. comment on that last point about the stakeholders. Mm. Um, I think we were very convinced by the end of the SRC seminar series that looked at this issue of user engagement that there, there was enough evidence of uh, stakeholder involvement from the start of the idea of the research making uh, increasing impact 
positive or negative, which links me into uh, the gentleman's point about um, uh, unintended consequences. Um, uh, clearly, there's ethical issues in pursuing research which has unintended consequences, which we have to think about when we're starting out with any piece of research. But in terms of impact, I think our discussion about impact assumes positive impact, whereas, in fact, I'm, I'm very clear that I, I am a sub-panel member, and I'm very clear that discussion so far has been also about negative impact or what might be deemed to be negative impact in the sense that if you're evaluating a public service and some aspect of it isn't working properly, isn't it better that the um, impact of the research is to withdraw something or stop it and hopefully introduce something that does work rather than, and I mean, we, you know, governments are uh, weak at doing this right across government in terms of pilots. Uh, we don't wait for the outcome of the pilot, we just get on and roll it out. So, you know, that, that for me is an issue. Your point about it being politicised was really the final point I was trying to make in my presentation, that I think there's a delicate balance, and I've drawn on the work of Christopher Winch, who's an educational philosophy person, to look at this delicate balance between train, staying true to yourself and the research and actually being willing, as Nick said, to engage with the policy agenda. I don't go along with this. We're researchers, and therefore it's up to you policy people to interpret our findings. If people are going to interpret our findings, we should engage with them in that process. Otherwise, they will do things inevitably that you don't think are, are a fair interpretation. And just on the issue of knowledge exchange versus mm -hmm. knowledge transfer, um, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the work in Canada is very clear that pushing this stuff out doesn't do it. And actually, some people who get maximum exposure are exactly you know, the, the research you don't want to have maximum exposure because it's not very good research. So, you know, we've got to be very careful here. We don't want more impact of everything. We want more impact of the best research. And the, the, the REF does build that in quite nicely. And in terms of the, the point about um, bringing in stakeholders to look at uh, impact case studies, it is very clear about the relationship there between quality and impact. And it's saying it must be excellent research that's having an impact. If it's not excellent research, there's no point worrying about whether it has an impact or not. You want to stop it having an impact. <laughs> so, um, so the title of the session is clearly um, mis mislabeled. It should be um, exchange, not transfer, and um, bridging more than um, translation. Um, I think it is clear that uh, you guys are going to get a lot more of us uh, beating a path to your door and taking up your time and uh, looking to build long relationships, not just uh, quick moments of dissemination. So uh, that's the way the uh, Academy is certainly going. So we are out of time, and we have a plenary in this room uh, in five minutes. So if I could just ask you all to thank the panel once more.